0: You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number nineteen. Before they were purple, part four, Tommy Boland, and coming to you from the suburbs of Chicago. I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry,
1: and from the steamy suburbs of Rhode Island, I'm your co-host, Johnny the Farmer Matola. Farmer.
0: All right, that's a good one. Yeah, the farmer. It's it's kind of very rustic. <laughs> do you think he yeah. was? Do you think he was a? Now, do you think that with all these Martin Birch names, like there's a story behind them, or like it did? Oh yeah. So I wonder what the story behind the farmer is.
1: There's got to be somewhere you can find out because in this article that I read about him, all these nicknames that he got were for things that um, that happened during the production or whatever of the album. Um. So uh, there must be like maybe some shenanigans that he got into with the guys from White Snake or Iron Maiden or whoever he was working with at the time, and they were just like they probably all yeah.
0: directly came from like members of the band giving him that nickname.
1: Yeah, probably. And and uh, you know they were they were out cavorting or having a good time, and they, he'd already started with the whole nickname thing, and so they're like, man, this one we're gonna call you the Farmer because you. I don't know. He stole a tractor and drove it around drunk one night after we recorded. I don't know. Or
0: maybe like he maybe just like like brought in some like he maybe has like a garden at his house and he brought in like some peppers he'd grown or something and they're like ah, Birchie thinks he's a farmer. We're gonna call him the farmer now. Like just ribbing him for his new hobby. I think in this case either one seems
1: plausible. And it could it could be plausible. Your your seems more. I don't know why there'd be a tractor like just hanging around somewhere <laughs> unless he recorded, unless he recorded in the, on a
0: farm somewhere. I don't know. Well, they were always recording in these weird like castles and places like that. So he might have had or so Maybe like a drunken stole a tractor or something. Yeah, I'd like to think that
1: that one was true. Although him bringing in like some you know, uh, cucumbers from his garden or something
0: like that would have been like, ha, 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 ha. Like my father-in-law, he grows like all these like peppers and then he like goes to like McDonald's drive-thru and just gives them to the people working there. Like, hey, you like peppers? He, he just gives them the peppers through the drive-thru window. <laughs> I love that. Uh So if you want to keep up to date on the show, <laughs> on this amazing <laughs> show, a, if this is your f- first episode, you'll be like, what the hell are they what is, I thought I was going to hear about Deep Purple. Uh, so if you want to keep up to date on the show, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher is. You can subscribe on YouTube or on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. All the links to that great stuff and our extensive show notes are at deeppurplepodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and want to hear more, you could become a patron on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And most importantly, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Help new people discover the show. Um, lots of activity on social media this week. Um, not a ton probably to go over, but, uh, today was a huge landmark for me because the deep purple podcast, Twitter feed, which is a little less than four months old, just beat out my main Twitter account that I've had for like 13 years. (laughs) as number of followers. Wow. and it probably well, had I mean, more, the deep... more interaction in those four months than I did in the last 13 years on the other account just because there's so much uh, engagement it's really cool so thank you to everybody who's been following on Twitter
1: well, I was going to say I'm sure that more people would be inclined to see the Deep Purple podcast and follow than just
0: you right? especially since I probably <laughs> um, I probably spent the bulk of those 13 years uh, averaging about four posts a year <laughs> mm, I've only been kind yeah. of semi-active for the past like year or two as I've gotten back onto Twitter. I, I took a very long hiatus. Mm. Um, went to the went to Facebook before I abandoned that platform altogether. Uh, thanks to our patrons this week: Clay Wambacher at the five-dollar tier, Steve Seberg from AllTheWorldsOfStage.net five-dollar tier, and Peter Gardot, your beer buddy, three-dollar tier. We appreciate yeah. the support. And today's episode as you may have gathered from the title, is all about the final guitar player or second guitar player uh, of this era, the beginning stages of Deep Purple, Tommy Bolin, who is only on the one Deep Purple album and sadly and tragically passed away at the age of 25, but not before creating an enormous amount of music and leaving behind an amazing legacy. So what do you remember your first, is, is Deep Purple your first exposure to Tommy Bolin? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I didn't hear, I had no
1: idea who he was before Deep Purple. Uh, I mean, really, there was no way for me to because, like, all the bands that he was in are, I mean, yeah, I guess it would make sense that I would have listened to some of them. But, I mean, let's face it, some of them, how, how would I have even heard of them? True. Yeah. So it, he was very like, especially back then, like on the fringe, like yeah. the Tommy Bolan box set, the bands that he was in, it's just like, who the, who the heck has even ever heard
0: of him? I, I think I might've heard a little bit of his James gang stuff without really knowing yeah. that it was him at the time. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, I think my first exposure was come taste the band. And, you know, one of the last, sadly, one of the last things that he did, But he also put put out a couple of great solo albums after Come Taste the Band as well. Uh, But we're not going to talk about those today.
1: Well, yeah, I I just remember going into, um, I think it was the the Rhode Island Mall or the Warwick Mall, whichever one it was. That had I, I
0: always had the trouble between them because they were right next door to each other. They were both in Warwick. Yeah. So it was hard to tell which one's Rhode Island yeah. and which one. They're both in Rhode Island, they're both in Warwick, but yeah, they're the, the Rhode Island r- Mall, the Warwick Mall. Right next to each
1: other. Yeah. And um, there was a there was a, a record store, a tape store, whatever, at the time, and I, I wanna say that whichever one it was, I used to always go over and like, um, and at that time the mall was booming. Mm-hmm. Um, Back when Wells
0: <laughs> did that.
1: <laughs> yeah, people were just like in just in record stores and all the time and everything. And at this point, let's clarify that people were buying cassettes and CDs, not records. Um, so it was like the CDs would be in those bins in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then the cassettes would be on the, the peripheral, like on the walls, like just kind of going around the perimeter of like the store.
0: And the so cassettes always, would be in that big, long, like plastic like um so sometimes
1: i think this was before that um they just had them out loose uh, there was a time where they did and cds too until they did that whole big plastic thing so you couldn't steal them and the long sure boxes
0: that, they had the long boxes mm-hmm. on the cds
1: yeah but i like to go in and and look at the uh whenever i was at the mall even if i wasn't buying which was most of the time because i was a poor teenager <laughs> um, but, um, I, but I would go look so I could, you know, look and see which ones I wanted to buy if I could buy. And I always like got the come taste the band, like either cassette or CD. And it always mesmerized me because it was just so cool because it was just like this big wine goblet or whatever with the four pictures on it. And, um, yeah, I, I was just—I uh, was already into Deep Purple, and I didn't know who these other guys were. I just knew it was this later Deep Purple album that I hadn't heard, and I really wanted
0: it, and I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably because it looks so cool. I don't uh, remember ever seeing it. I don't—I don't remember ever seeing it at the store. I don't know where. I mean, I must have eventually gotten it at a store, but I don't yeah. remember. It wasn't—it—it it wasn't very. It didn't get a ton of respect ever.
1: <laughs> well, it was just one of those, one of those oddball, like ones sitting around, they'd have like, of course they have like, uh, like machine head in rock, like the, the deepest purple greatest hits album. And then like that one, they would just have the oddest selection of, of like cassettes or CDs. You know what I mean? They just have like a smattering of everybody's it was just like that I felt with every band. They'd always have like a couple of the popular albums, like a couple of the really like out there ones, and then some shitty greatest hits. And that was it. <laughs> and, like it's your typical, like, yeah. you know, tape world or whatever, you know.
0: It was, yeah, it was always random. It was never like a complete discography of a band. It was just <laughs> these, these, whatever they had in stock at the moment. Yeah. Um yeah, I've spent the last week since our last recording listening to every Tommy Bolin album, including Come Taste the Band. I listen to his solo albums. I listen to his work with all of his other bands and just to kind of really get in the the mind frame for this and just re-appreciate how amazing he was. Um, and we're going to get into just a little bit of that. We're going to explore some of the music he made a little bit of the music he made with each one of these acts. And if you're familiar with the ultimate boxed set, which came out, which was like a, a, it was a two CD set. I don't know why it was in that giant box. It was like, it looked like the size of a record. You have it around. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You know what? I actually, I actually think, I should have thought of this beforehand. I actually think when I was redoing this room, I found it and I left it like out somewhere. So now minute, that you me mention it, sec- I
0: think I have it too in like a box of CDs my parents have brought over, but I, I forgot to put it up in the back there. Give me one second. I think I have it. Oh boy, yeah, this is a very big, um, a big deal. This really nice, nice big box set it had two CDs and a a booklet in there, and it covered all of these acts yep. that he was with. Oh, you got it. Here it is. Oh great. Let's get a look at that. Oh yeah. I remember getting that at this I think it was I wanna say it was a strawberries on like Route Two.
1: Oh wait a minute. Oh this is this is sweet. This is in such this is in such good condition,
0: the booklet. I get the booklet. I, I'm an idiot. I should have even looked through my booklet for this, but I didn't even I didn't even think about it.
1: Oh well I'm gonna put this up in the back all right. Well apparently the um <laughs> This was the—honest and, and, uh, to God, I don't know where I could have bought this or anything, but um, this is to show you a hole that is. There's the two holes where the cassettes—
0: Oh, <laughs> you had the cassette one. I that's like, Yeah, that is in, like, perfect condition. Look at that.
1: Yeah, like, this is, like, not even, like— Yeah. For for our listeners, I am showing a pristine version of this box. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with, that is, like, near mint condition right there. With a uh, missing cassettes. Well, I took really good care of my stuff. Like, this book yeah, is, you like— did brand new um of course my favorite picture of tommy bolan <laughs> with the payphone
0: yeah <laughs> looking hey, like all, the payphone. Eh, you want to make a pff- you want to make a phone call he looks all <laughs> sassy <laughs> uh but this
1: is uh yeah this is really great
0: that's great so. wow nice i i should have dug mine out i didn't even think about it but i'll probably i'll have to dig it up before we do our next episode um yeah. so if you're familiar with that that set that was like one of the first real compilations celebrating his entire career that came out that I was aware of, anyway. We had seen the ultimate documentary, and we got that. And uh, it came out in 1989. Oh wow! In 89, it came out. So it was, yeah, yeah it wasn't it wasn't too old when we got it. We got it a few years after that. It was a two, a two cassette. Retrospective. Mm -hmm. Ooh, two two whole cassettes. (laughs) Mine was was two CDs, but yeah, the same idea. And so we're going to be covering a lot of this, I mean, all the kind of same ground that that covers, but we're going to take a different path through it. So if you're familiar with that one, you might hear um, things off of the same albums, but you'll hear different tracks as those, you know, if you're familiar with this, we don't want to just play the ultimate. We wanted to kind of get through a little taste so we got six tracks to go through all the different uh, acts, apart from his solo albums, because those we're gonna we're gonna cover late, later on at a different time and really give those the attention that they deserve. Uh, but right now we're just talking about the lead up to Deep Purple, and unfortunately, ninety percent of his career was behind him. By the time he joined Deep Purple, he only did a couple a couple more things after Deep Purple before passing away. So, um, Tommy Bolin was born in Sioux City, Iowa. August 1st, 1953. He started playing drums and then later keyboards before getting the guitar. His dad uh, went to Sears and got him a guitar at Sears, fu- purveyor of fine guitars. His father <laughs> took him to see Elvis and Tommy Boland said once he saw Elvis, he said, one day I'm going to be on stage like that. And he really kind of got the got the bug from watching Elvis. He was on a uh, show called Kids Corner where he played Heartbreak Hotel and uh, was really uh, made a splash with that Uh, so he was really young and he was playing in bands in high school and his father got a school bus and painted it blue and they called the band Patch of Blue and he would drive them around uh, because they had to be accompanied by adults because they weren't old enough but they were playing in bars so he'd drive them all around in the bus to all these different shows and stuff when he was 13 he was in a band called the Miserloos or the M-I-S-E-R-L-O-U-S. I I don't know how to pronounce
1: that. Maybe the Miserloos, like the Dick Dale song. Oh, maybe. Oh,
0: maybe. I'm not familiar with that song. So,
1: the Miserloos. You know, the the, the, the Pulp Fiction theme?
0: Oh, that's what that's called? Miserloo,
1: yeah.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense. I always always just knew it as that Surf song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He was, another kid from school, Brad Miller, was in a band called Denny and the Triumphs. They recruited him to join, and uh, then, so he was in that band for a while as well. The, The rules at his school were that the hair had to be, like, above the collar, and they talk about this in the documentary. His mom is, his mom is awesome. His mom and dad were, like, really supportive of him, and they were just basically, like, Nah, it's bullshit. The school's telling him he needs to cut his hair. He doesn't have to cut his hair. I and mean, we'll support Tommy and do what he wants to do. And like he ended up just like dropping out of school because he like cut his hair and they said it wasn't good enough. And he was just like, you know, the ultimate like, well, screw you, man. I'm I'm leaving school. And the ultimate rebel just kind of leaves school and decides he's going to drop out and start pursuing music. And he uh, he moves to Denver. And he bo- he he joins this band called American Standard. And then later. Um, there's a band called Crosstown Bus that Jeff Cook is in, and Jeff Cook tells the story of them, uh, be, him in, with his band Crosstown Bus uh, jamming and playing, and they hear this kind of tapping on the window, and they look back, and there's this little kid, 15 years old, Tommy Bolin, with a with a guitar, saying, "Hey, I want to jam," and they're like, hey, beat it, kid, get out of here," but they eventually let him in. He plugs in, he plays like Purple Haze perfectly. And they fired their guitarist and (laughs) just made him the guitarist of the band. And he played with them for a little while and then eventually ends up kind of his first thing is being in this band called Ethereal Zephyr after this. And later on, of course, they changed their name just to Zephyr. And that's where a lot of the musical stuff with Tommy Bolin begins is with the band Zephyr. And for Zephyr, I I tried something a little different. Um, Zephyr did three albums And I have a video of them performing because I thought it maybe be a little more interesting, at least for the video feed, for the audio, it's going to be just kind of the same. But this is them live playing the St. James Infirmary on the Barry Richards Show. And this would have been, this must have been 1969 because that's when that first album came out. So here it is. It's kind of a cool video representation of what they uh, looked like and sounded like at the time.
1: All right, all right before, before we get before we get Little Richard together, let's pick up the album by Zephyr and see if we can get them to do a number for us. What are they gonna play? Saint James Infirmary. That's where you're gonna end up if they don't sound good.
0: <laughs> Whoops. I, yep. Sorry. I gotta. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this over again because I I messed it all up and it came up with some stupid update. So I'm gonna start it all up so you can hear the intro and. Before we get Little Richard together. And what year was this again? It would have been 1969,
1: I guess. They're gonna play St James Infirmary that's where you're gonna end up if they don't sound good
0: <laughs> I saw somebody talking about this album the other day It's like ah, I like the album with the toilet on it <laughs> like, they make a they make an actual like representation of the album cover in real life which is cool. That's Candy Givens, the singer, and who gets obviously compared to Janis Joplin a lot. It's very similar in tone. Extremely cheesy video of them on a brick wall, kind of graffitiing the word "Zephyr." It's a very bluesy rendition of that song. That's Candy Givens on vocals. David Givens on bass and backing vocals. That's her husband. On drums, Robbie Chamberlain. On piano, organ, flute, and I believe playing that clarinet, there is John Ferris. Dead center there, Mr. Tommy Bolin on the Les Paul.
1: I think you're really good. This is really just kind of like so 60s raw blue uh like a jazzy blues baby, type of thing. My baby, my baby all
0: all. I, I mean this is like 69 so you hear like a lot of kind of you know, that hippy-dippy psychedelic crap that we've heard so many times on the show listening to older stuff, but they're really doing something, you know, a little different.
1: Yeah, this is definitely different. But you can tell by the visuals if you're watching this. It's definitely really hippy-dippy inspired. Yeah.
0: (laughs) In here, you can see Tommy's playing and hear his playing just very... Great blues playing and just great, just, there's really no player I can think of that's quite like him in style. Yeah, he's
1: very, he's very unique. And that's, uh, even though he wasn't really well known outside of maybe Deep Purple fans, that's how I, once I got into music, I always knew the mark of a good guitar player is when you can just tell. Who's playing Mm -hmm. without knowing who's on it. Like, I mean, you could tell his playing, his tone, his style. You could tell Richie's playing in style, so on and so forth.
0: And having a little jazz breakdown. (laughs) I actually really like this. It's really good. I think it's. It's very chill. And this is where Tommy Bolin really shines. A great natural talent, this kind of jazzy style. But he didn't really seem to have a great deal of formal training. He just kind of figured out a lot of stuff on his own. So
1: sometimes um, some of the best guitarists are...
0: Have turned out that way and tommy bolin is not a he's not a shredder but he, he and tech technically odd style of playing and all that but but such such great instincts and like we've talked
1: like a guy like him or richie could but could be shredders or right. could have been shredders.
0: And thankfully they weren't. I mean, shredding <laughs> wasn't really so much a thing back then. But I mean they were they were like what you're saying is they're
1: technically proficient enough that if like um I don't know
0: Say they wanted to, they could have. Right. And we heard we heard uh Richie shredding at the end of April on the Deep Purple album, you know, and. Pretty much, and that's like late 60s
1: shredding. And then never really did it again after that.
0: Yeah.
1: Richie, the godfather of shred. Exactly.
0: And this is just being like recorded like live on what looks like a public access radio show. Yeah. A great performance of this song, which is one of the first songs on their first album, maybe the second song on it. Um, And honestly, I think this version to me is more interesting than the one on the album. That happens a lot with live songs. And the thing I find about Candy Givens is her, you know, we talked a little earlier about the the first Zephyr album. We were listening to it kind of at the same time, and the, by the end of the album, you're you've had your fill of Candy Givens. You know, like I I I love what she does. I love her style, but by the end of the album, you're like your ears need a rest. And yeah, it's it's exhausting. <laughs> I always um, and I read I say that with a lot of respect for her and what she does, um, but you know I, I always remembered the going back to Colorado album being liking it more so I went and listened to that and I'm like oh my god it was kind of like we talked about with Richie's playing in the early Deep Purple recordings which is it was a lot in the production because that going back to Colorado her voice is nothing like that it's like EQ'd better it doesn't cut through the mix it's not like your ears need a rest after listening to that first sound because it's just like ah the whole time, and you're like, "Oh my god!" But the the going back to Colorado, I think she sing, she changes up her singing a little bit more. She sings a little mm-hmm. more breathy on some songs, and and it's it's fantastic. And I was shocked because I, until like a week ago, I thought they only had those two albums. Yeah, and it I turn it turns out they had a, a a second album in between those two that for some reason. Somewhere along the, I got my big stack of Deep Purple CDs in the background there. I never heard of it or got it. I got the Zephyr album. I got Going Back to Colorado, which I preferred and listened to probably more. And then they had an album in between called Sunset Ride. So I, I don't I, think I heard of that one. I never heard of it, and I don't know why. Because I was always obsessively looking over this stuff. As soon as I heard about Tommy Bolin, I got, I got all of his albums except <laughs> Sunset Ride, apparently. Um, and I got it. Last or early this week or last week, I can't remember. And I listened to it, and it's, I think I like it better than the other two. It's a fantastic album, very well produced and interesting songs and really good stuff. So I'd highly recommend picking that Sunset Ride up. Huh. Um, and, and both Sunset Ride and going back to Colorado, her voice is much better EQ'd. It's better in the mix. She's, uh, I mean, th- I think she's always sung well. It just, it doesn't wear on you the same way it doesn't that first album because man, by the time I got to the end of that, I needed a break.
1: Oh, there is Sunset Ride. I never, um,
0: I never even knew that that was. Um, I wonder how that got past us. I have, I don't know. I feel like somebody's like playing an elaborate joke on me because like I, I, I thought for sure they only had those two albums for like, whatever, how many years since twenty-five years or whatever. I, I thought that and.
1: Well, you know what
0: happens too a lot of
1: times with albums, and I'm just guessing um there are um there are albums like that are not widely available because the original record company went under or somebody yeah. else owns the rights to it and it's out of print or so you just you never saw it or heard of it or it's not considered part of the like official catalog and one of the albums that makes me think of that, that has like nothing to do with the sixties is um, Ozzy's speak of the devil. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I loved that one. Yeah. Which I thought that was great. It was an awesome album, but apparently never considered like official, an official part of the Ozzy catalog. So they would always skip over it in like, uh, you know, in those early days and like the discography posters or things in magazines or whatever. And I was always like, well, how come they don't acknowledge that album? And yeah, you're right. I, yep. And I, I think the first Judas Priest album was kind of the same thing. Um, Either that or sometimes they'll have like uh, in that album, I think there were like two or three different album covers or it's it's not always listed as part of their official discography or it's not on like these days. It's like there'll be some things that aren't on Spotify for that reason. And um, which I just looked on Spotify and I did see that Zephyr album, which I'm going to now I'm going to listen to it after. Yeah, yeah. But um, but my guess is, like, that maybe that's why we never heard of it. Because I even remember going mm-hmm. to, to record stores uh, when, when their street was the big thing, the alternative to the mall. They had a ton of record stores, meaning, like, actual vinyl. So during that same time, when I was getting older and didn't want the tape stores anymore and I was getting into records, found the two original Zephyr albums, which I'm surprised that they're, like... Ten feet away from me. I don't know why I didn't dig this stuff out. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have I don't have any of the Zephyr stuff on vinyl for some reason, but 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 those are the only ones I ever heard about or knew about, and I and I have bought them. I have them, but it's like I never even knew that that third one
0: existed or that one in the middle, like you said, like a, a sophomore album. Yeah, it's definitely so. worth a listen if you're if you wanted to if you want to get into that, get into Zephyr a little bit. That's that's probably one of their more bluesy songs that we just played, and that particular version of it is even. More over the top blues, but yeah, they did some really good stuff, bluesy stuff. Very, you know, if you're into mm-hmm. Janis Joplin and that that style, then you're gonna love Zephyr. They're really great. So, uh, at the end of going back to Colorado, apparently Tommy was really annoyed with Candy and David, who were, you know, I'm sure it was a weird d- dynamic, husband and wife in the band, and they wanted more creative control, and he was really pissed off about how they mixed going back to Colorado, so he quit the band. In 1972, and he decided to form this band. So at this point, God, how old is like this guy? 18 maybe? Mm. Um, well, no, it wouldn't be 18. He'd probably be like, like 20. Yeah, yeah, 20-ish. Yeah, about oh, yeah, 20, um, 19 or 20 or whatever. He so he decides him and Bobby Burge in the band uh, leave, and they form Energy. And Tommy, at the time, you know, it was like he's he vowed he will never be in a band with a female singer again. As if that was the problem, but um, so at first, Energy had no vocalist. It was just a very freeform, uh, jazzy, rocky sort of band, and they uh, they you know were against anything commercial. You know, typical like. You know, kind of teenage a-holes. Um, You know, oh no, it's too commercial. We don't want to do. They, you know, they don't want to have anything to be. And I'm not trying to demean what they were doing. I, we, I'm, <laughs> I'm acknowledging that I also went through that phase, as we all did. He's like, making fun of all of us when yes. we were teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If they had, you know, if and sadly, if he had lived to be, to to see his forties, he would have probably looked back at them and been like, oh, I was so insufferable, because that's <laughs> what we all do um but you know they you know they were always be, they were a very talented band but they were given this advice like here's what you got to do to appeal to more people you got to play more covers you got to do shorter songs you need vocals and they were like screw that we don't want to do any of that so uh they were in, instrumental for a, a, a while he, Tommy Bolin was kind of like I'm not only don't want a female singer I don't want any singer I just don't want to have a singer in my band cuz singers are a problem and you know probably thought he had it all figured out Uh, But eventually Jeff Cook joins the band on vocals and they never released anything uh, commercially, but in the wake of of Tommy's death, they've released a lot of stuff. So this one is a song that they just kind of released a a one-off album called Tommy Bolin Energy, but it's really the band Energy. And this song is called Limits. definitely has a lot of Tommy Bowen hallmarks on it.
1: The cover looks like somebody like cut and pasted his head onto like a different body.
0: It does. It (laughs) it does not look very expertly made. That's not, yeah, not a great cover. So this band was Stanley Sheldon on bass, Bobby Burge on drums, Tom Stevenson on keyboards, and Jeff Cook on vocals. I have a different little vibe to the song. I kind of liked it. I think that's Tommy on backing vocals. It sounds like so
1: far a lot of his early stuff is really kind of this like poppy, jazzy type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like nothing like, almost makes you wonder how he found his way into Deep Purple, because this is like the exact opposite of what they were releasing.
0: Yeah, and yeah, in a way, Deep Purple was kind of. His first true straight rock band. I mean, obviously, Deep
1: Purple changed a lot by the time that he joined, but. I wonder what his thought process was and like, yeah, I'd I'd fit
0: in with these guys. Yeah, that's definitely Tommy Bolin backing vocals, I think it sounds like him. So this band uh, eventually just called it quits in 1973. They couldn't get a record contract, but Jeff mm-hmm. Cook in the in the Tommy Boland documentary tells a story how they were playing two shows in one night, and uh, these record executives come to see them at their first show, and the band and they said they just played incredibly. They told them it was as good as done. They had a record deal. And then the band was super excited. They went to celebrate in between the two sets. They started drinking. They started drinking like green alcohol. And then they went and played their second show and completely bombed it, like just like we're falling over drunk and everything. And they didn't realize that the record executives were still there (laughs) and they saw the second show as well. So they canceled it and they never got the contract.
1: I think that that story is like bullshit. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) Like, why would you be like, yeah, you guys are as good as signed, and then they bomb a second set? It's like, did they even ask them why they bombed it? Like, yeah, do you guys party? Yeah. Oh, okay. Then maybe that's why you sucked.
0: (laughs) Don't do that anymore.
1: Yeah, like, at least when you go in the studio, like, if they saw that they could be that good once, I wonder why. I just, I don't know. I'd heard that story for years, and I'm just like, oh, they blew it (laughs) all.
0: Oh, so close. But now I just think it's stupid. I like this guitar solo just doing all these like octaves. A lot of passion in his playing, and Richie Blackmore is always talking about how he doesn't like shred guitar players and people who just play a million notes a minute because it doesn't sound like they're ever searching for a note. Yeah. Sometimes I just roll my eyes when Richie Blackmore starts talking about stuff like that, but I understand what he's saying. And the thing, that the feeling I get similarly from Tommy Bolin that you get from Richie Blackmore is that, like. Making it up as you go along and just trying new things and and like not having it all like figured out. He's not just running up and down a scale. He's not trying to do some flashy sweep arpeggios. He's just saying, you know, he's just playing these like cool things. He's making a few mistakes here and there, but kind of like John Lord, you know, he makes a mistake, but when Tommy Bolin makes a mistake, it he can he can turn it into something great, and it's 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 cool to hear that because as much as I technically appreciate a lot of really flashy shred guitar players and love watching their videos uh, at the end of the day, I don't necessarily want to sit and listen to somebody shred for an hour. I, you know, hearing somebody of Tommy Bolin's style or Richie Blackmore's style is much more interesting to me. I agreed. So whether or not you believe that story about energy for whatever reason, they were never signed. And, um,
1: I believe it. I just think that it's horseshit that those people thought that way.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah, I agree. Like, like you saw them play a great show, and then they obviously, clearly got really drunk. Like, why would you care? Especially in 1972 or whatever. Like, people are doing a lot worse than getting drunk. Um, but yeah, that's there. You have it. That's that's one track from. If you like, if you like what you heard, there, that's one song off of the album. There's lots of different kind of styles on that album. So it's an interesting thing to listen to if you're into Tommy Bolin. I don't know that I would necessarily give it a huge spin unless you really dug that song. Um, So after this, Tommy was kind of just floating around and Billy Cobham had caught caught wind of him. And Billy Cobham was this great jazz drummer, pretty established. And, he wanted Tommy Bolin to play on his album. So Tommy Bolin, I think this was in New York. I think he flew him to New York and just did one session with him and said, here's the songs we have. And Tommy Bolin was a little nervous because he couldn't read sheet music. And these are all jazz players, so obviously they're all reading sheet music. But Mm -hmm. Billy Cobham just wrote out some charts and said, here's what we're going to play, this key, that key, whatever, and do your stuff and... Uh, the first track on that album is just will melt your face off with how incredible his guitar playing is and that's the one that's on the ultimate but I'm going to play another one which I actually know you love because I think this is the first one you ever played me from this album and this song is called um, I believe this is both depending on the CD or the album it's a Snoopy Snoopy's Search and the Red Baron starts off with starts off with an a little digital or analog synth sort of thing going on here. <laughs> Sounds like playing games on my television. Yeah. So this part is clearly does not have a but this is a great album and there's a great interplay between the keys and the keys and the guitar on this album. And sometimes you can't, all, you almost can't tell the difference between the two. It's a very weird interlude, <laughs> a little weird intro to the song, but <laughs> it doesn't last very long. Yeah. So on keyboards, this was um, Jan, uh, maybe Jan Jan Hammer or Jan, yeah, probably Jan, because he's Czechoslovakian. Jan Hammer, who did all the keys, and here it kicks in. Song has a really great groove to it.
1: Well, so far you just see a theme and the type of music that Tommy Bolin is doing. It's jazzy. Yep. Although love this.
0: I love how they do that off-time thing, it's so crazy. That off-time thing gets me every time because they're in perfect <laughs> unison, but it's, it's not yeah. in time with anything. Listen to this. <laughs> it's like, how do they do that? It's crazy. They're good. Yeah, great players. And like I said, you know, they're probably used to working with people reading off of sheet music or whatever. And in comes Tommy Bull and just does his thing on this whole album. Here he goes. And this album gets a huge amount of play and puts his name on the map for a lot of people. And this is how David Coverdale eventually will hear of Tommy Boland. He gets a copy of this album and just listens to it obsessively. They talk even in one of the books I was reading about how when they they wanted to get in touch with Tommy Boland and have him come down and play with them. They had no idea who he was or what he looked like. And they knew he, they, they said at one point, they said, we didn't know if he was, you know, a 70 year old African-American blues guitarist. They didn't know. They had no idea. They just knew his name and listened to him play. And we're probably pretty astonished to find out how young he was. Yeah. This is, I think, I think this is the album closer. And it's a very, you know, it's just got the kind of this groove going on the whole time and Tommy and Tommy just playing over large parts of it. And that beginning song, though, is is Quadrant Four, I think, is the name of it. it mm-hmm. the, the start after the album, where you just he's just all over the place and uh Playing this really interesting, you know, guitar solos that unlike anything you've really ever heard before. He's not—he's not using any of the standard clichés of blues or or even jazz for that matter. He's doing his own thing. So, he gets a lot of acclaim for this album. He he uh, gets a lot of attention, and uh, unfortunately, after this, he kind of does this one session and he and it's over he's done he's he's kind of broke so joe walsh uh is decides he's leaving the james gang at this point and he calls tommy Bolin and personally asks him to be his replacement in the james gang um and then jeff cook who is with him in energy decides to just still do songwriting with him for the james gang um, so Tommy, I guess, was a little embarrassed about the James Gang. Like he felt like it was like too commercial or whatever. He, mm-hmm. They talk about that, and his, his ex-girlfriend talks about that, and Glenn Hughes's ex-wife as well talks about that in the Tommy Bullen documentary about how he felt like embarrassed that he's in this like you know mainstream band or whatever. Although James Gang wasn't <laughs> that huge or anything, but it was yeah. a solid gig. It was a solid paycheck, and that's the really uh, that's the thing that was really important. To him, so so I'm gonna play a song uh, he did two albums with James Gang, Bang and Miami, and this song is off of um, Miami, and it's called Wildfire. Oh, it sounds like Deep Purple.
1: I was gonna say this sounds sounds a little more the man on the silver mountain or something. Actually, (laughs) doesn't it? True. Yes. (laughs) Also, sounds like God of Thunder. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) All right, so we've already uh, we've already picked two songs that have this sounds like, but it's uh, it's definitely. Uh, different than the other stuff like he's definitely different style of music for him on this
0: yeah so in the book Touched on* Mag- *Touched by Magic which is like a interviews basically with all people who've walked, worked with and known Tommy Boland Tommy Bolin himself says about this band they were tight among themselves but it was like I was on one side of the river and they were on the other for instance I'd be doing a guitar solo be getting really into it and they would almost, at points, look bored, you know? They were straight-laced rock players, whereas I wanted to go out and explore other places. They had some really great um, great songs with, in James Gang, though, and Tommy Boland's song, Alexis, I think which he wrote with uh, Jeff Cook, is a really beautiful song. So this is... Um, Dale Peters on bass and backing vocals, Jim Fox on drums, and Roy Kenner on lead vocals and percussion.
1: And I, mean, I don't think that anything commercial or any hits or anything came off these two albums, right? I mean, these were kind of the no. James Gang like kind of in-between
0: albums that nobody really talks about. I mean, yeah, I mean mainstream wise does anybody even know anything other than Funk 49 by the James Gang? Are there any other big hits they had? I wouldn't even call that I'm, a big hit. It just it's probably their most well-known yeah. song.
1: Yeah, not that I can think of.
0: I think he added a really great instrument, uh, a really great element, rather, to this band. Classic slide solo by Tommy
1: Bolin. Yeah, this is more Tommy doing straight-ahead rock, like the stuff he doing do in Deep Purple.
0: Yeah, he does a lot of slide solos and, and come taste the band. I wonder if, if he ever used a screwdriver. Ha! Ah. <laughs> I still think every time I hear him play, though, I'm always astonished. It's just there's nothing cliche about anything he's doing. It's all it's all like he's playing by ear, or he's just figuring things out, or going for these interesting patterns. He's not just doing like you know, if I pick up a guitar, just like the first thing I do is just play like a classic blues sort of. Pentatonic thing, just as, as, as a default, you know, like before I do anything, just like get that out of the way, you know. Like he doesn't do that; he just goes to he goes to these other places that most people don't yeah. go. So that was a little sample of his work with James Gang, and after James Gang, uh, Alphonse Muzon got in touch with him and wanted him to play with him. So he. Hooked up with him, and in, in a, an album that if you like Billy Cobham's Spectrum, then you'll probably like this album as well. Very interesting sort of jazz fusion album, and I'm sure he heard of him through through his work with um, through his work with Billy Cobham. Mm-hmm. And this album, uh, this song rather, is called "Snowbound." Tommy Boland said, I did the Mind Transplant album with Alphonse Mazone. I really like the LP, but every tune is about a minute too long. This song's hmm. only three minutes long, so I don't know how mature he wanted it to be.
1: Ooh, a little voice box in there. Yeah, that's what it sounds like, right?
0: So Muzan said of Tommy, Tommy was a pure genius at what he did. No one played guitar like Tommy. Tommy was always funny and making jokes. He was really happy and sincere. It all showed in his guitar playing. He didn't read music, but it didn't matter because he had a special gift that allowed him to memorize melodies and chord changes immediately. He would add harmonies to the melodies because Tommy had great ears. And this this band is uh or this album is henry davis on bass alphonse Mouzon on on drums and jerry peters on organ so here we are like you know, almost you know only a minute left in the song and it's still just kind of rocking out on this gro- i love how it's just rocking out on this groove but it's not like a Nobody's doing any showboaty sort of stuff, you know? Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty repetitive, but they're keeping it interesting by adding in all these other elements and Yeah. But they're they're not just soloing over it. It's a great groove. You got a groove this good, you just go with it. I've been, I, I listened to this album a couple of times this week because I'm really digging it. And I've only listened to a few other things by Alphonse Buzon and Billy Cobham, but I always think like I should get everything that both of those guys ever did and listen to it. Yeah, They're incredible. I mean, yeah, you you know,
1: uh, I I've done that sometimes with bands like that, where it's like, oh, this album is so cool, it has such and such on it, and then I get the other ones, and I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's the that is the the risk that you run of.
0: Yeah, I, I did that, that back you know, in the that. CD days a lot where I just like, oh. without like, I'd hear one album, it'd be great. Then I'd be like, I'm going to go get all the other re- five albums. And I'm like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> These aren't as good. Yeah. Now like, with rather, streaming, rather than there's getting like no one risk. at a time, I just go off overboard, you know? Oh, God. Well, with streaming
1: now, there's no risk.
0: So it's like, yes.
1: I'd be like, hey, this sounds cool. And then I'm like, bleh. And then I just get to walk away. <laughs>
0: So after that, um, he did this album with the band Moxie, which he wasn't really in the band. Earl Johnson was the guitar player, and he was supposed to do all the guitar in the album, but he got in a huge fight with the producer and the producer kicked him out of the studio. So Bolin was like nearby in like a, a, a studio around and the manager of the band had um, been the manager, one of the managers on the road with the James Gang. He says, hey, Tommy Bolin's around. I know him. This guy's a really great guitar player. So why don't you just have, have him come in here and do all the guitar solos for you? They said, oh, okay, cool. So this is an album I really love, the Moxie album. And I, I, I listened to. I listened to this album. I wore it out so much. I listened to it and start, it, it, it always, to me, sounded like a uh, early Botley crew, like Botley mm-hmm. crews influence came from this album and this album alone. Like the singer sounds like young Vince Neil and they're doing some cool stuff. So, uh, so this is a song from the album called moon Rider. Hear the Vince Neil thing?
1: Oh yeah, 100%.
0: <laughs> and if Tommy hadn't come in and done this say, Bailed them out on this album I don't think anyone would have ever heard of Moxie Unfortunately But some great songs, you know Here's Tommy playing here oh, For a second Terry Jurek on bass, Bill Wade on drums, Earl Johnson on some of the guitars, Buddy Kane on rhythm guitar, and Buzz Sherman is the vocalist. Buzz. Buzz. Johnson says Regarding Tommy, I loved his playing but never met him personally and I wish I had. I wrote about 95% of Moxie's first album as a guitar player.
1: So the guitar player never met this never met this guy.
0: No, and I think they let him in the band back after this. I think he like, oh, it was a good learning experience getting... Oh yeah, he says here, right. It actually made me f- made me a better player as I felt challenged and knew I had to improve my playing. Tommy had a great feel and style and I admired him for that. Hmm. Pretty good attitude about (laughs) getting all of his guitar work done for him on the album. Yeah. But Tommy was just this ultimate utility guy that was just around and people could take him for an album or a song or for their band or whatever. And he just would deliver every time. Here we go. Some of that phrasing is just not stuff you hear. I could hear a hundred other guitar players doing just a standard guitar solo over that, which would have been totally fine. Yeah. I think the thing I like about it is my ear is always expecting him to go to more of a traditional route, and it never does. I think he does something there that's kind of standard then he does something, like, rhythmically or, or melodically that you're not expecting. You can just tell that it's him. Yeah.
1: Like, you could have put this on and not told me who it was, and I would have told you exactly that it was Tommy Bolin once the solo started.
0: Really great stuff there in the fade-out, too. Yeah, man, that would be that would be hard. To have your uh, your guitar playing replaced with Dave with Tommy Bolin. <laughs> I was, yeah, thought I it was weird they, I would have been pissed. <laughs> it was weird they never took him in the band or anything. But so I know, right? So after that, that's um, Coverdale. Like I said, catches wind of Tommy Bolin through Spectrum and Mind Plant album and. Really wanted him in the band. He said, I was impressed with his work. And I had, I had, I had no idea if he was a 70-year-old African-American. I had no idea, he said. Um, everyone was impressed with him. So they sent out the word uh, that they wanted to meet with him in audition. So Tommy had only really seen the California jam. And he knew Smoke on the Water, but really didn't know Deep Purple. Didn't know their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his approach was like the diff, different from Blackmore's. Um, more laid back. He didn't need as much musical control, Um, but interestingly enough, you'll see with "Come Taste the Band," he's given almost total control over that album. (laughs) It's it's like almost a Tommy Bolin album with Deep, the Deep Purple band backing him up with the amount of songwriting and everything he does for it. It's it's incredible Uh, at that age and coming into a super established band. I mean, how old would he've he would have been like fifteen when Deep Purple formed? Um, Yeah. So Blackmore says about Tommy Bolin, he says, this is after they added Tommy Bolin to the band, Blackmore says, Tommy Bolin is very good. He's one of the best. I think Purple will probably be quite happy with him. He can handle a lot of stuff, including funk and jazz. Maybe they'll turn into a rather different band, but I really don't think so. I think they know that if they did that, they'd just be another funk band. They'll still keep to the rock side of things. I'm sure of it. In fact, the next album will probably be a lot rockier than my last record with them, Stormbringer. So throwing a little shade at Stormbringer like he likes to do. Wow, yeah. But I mean, I was expecting when you said
1: Blackmore said about Tommy Bolin, <laughs> I'm like, oh, here we go.
0: But it was actually. Well, he actually was, was. And one thing I didn't realize, he was friends with Tommy Bolin. And I, I wish I, I well, I mean, not like huge friends, but they, they were they knew each other and had met. And he tells this story in one mm-hmm. of the interviews that I should have gotten a clip for it where he. He goes to like Tommy Bolin's house because Tommy Bolin's like, "Hey, come check out my guitars." He's like, "Okay," so he goes to Tommy Boland's house and he says there was like nothing there. It was just like some pillows on the floor. And Tommy Bolin like brings out his guitar and he and Richie Blackmore says there was like an inch of like crusted dirt on all the strings. And he's like, he's like, uh, "You should probably, you know, these strings are pretty dirty." And Tommy Bolin was like, "Oh, oh, do you think I should change them?" Like what? <laughs> Know, but but he, was, he was still great. So they know, you know, I, I like that. Bull, uh, Blackmore had a lot of respect for for Tommy Bolin, and I, I, a lot of people do. He's kind of like a, you know, a guitar player's guitar player. He's he does. He's not a name like Hendrix or anything, but he was, you know, he, I. He reminds me of Hendrix a lot in the way that he's not. Even though Hendrix was very bluesy and stuff, he's not playing just the same old thing, kind of like Hendrix. He he had this very very different style. <clears throat> Uh, that really made him stand out. Yes, of course he does not get the, the 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 airplay that Hendrix did. but So anyway, that's that's kind of a little quick rundown of Tommy Bolin and what he was up to. Leading up to his acquisition by by Deep Purple, and you get a little bit of a taste for all those different things. Uh, so you've got two James Gang albums in there, the Energy album, three Zephyr albums. Mind Transplant with Alphonse Mazan, Spectrum, and then the Moxie album. So a lot of, a lot of material. And then after Deep Purple, he, or concurrent with, and after Deep Purple, he would do two solo solo albums, Teaser and Private Eyes, before he sadly uh, passed away. That's it, Tommy Bolin. Quick, quick and easy run up to our next episode, which will be Come Taste the Band.
1: which we will hear more Tommy Bolin.
0: More Tommy Bolin. And uh, some stuff going on in the news. Well, just one news item for today. An interesting one, which is uh, I won't be able to find because I have lost it. Um, But I saw this. I was very intrigued. If I can just find out where I put it. So maybe this is it. Yes. Bernie Marsden has a book and it's going to be getting released in November, which I'm really excited about. And the book is called Where's My Guitar? So, I got this notice, I immediately went to Amazon and it's like not even available for pre-order yet. So I just did that thing where you like enter in your email address. I'm like, give me this book as soon as it comes out. <laughs> um, so, it's described as a fascinating insight into the golden age of 1970s and 80s rock and roll, told through the eyes of music legend Bernie Marsden, and most notably his role in establishing one of the world's most famous rock bands of all time, White Snake. Bernie Marsden is a musical treasure. I don't, uh, this is a quote from uh, Steve Lo- Lukather. Bernie Marsden is a musical treasure. I don't think people know all he has done and just how much he was part of the early British rock scene to present day. It's all in here. Read this book. Touring with ACDC, befriending the Beatles, and writing one of the world's most iconic rock songs. This is the story of a young boy from a small town who dreamt of one day playing the guitar for a living and ended up a rock and roll legend. So, some interesting stuff about his... Exploits with Ringo Starr, Elton John, Cozy Powell, Ozzy, B.B. King, and John Lord. And uh there you have it. Bernie oh. Marsden, if you're into, into that stuff. I can't wait to read this one. I love Bernie Marsden. And I love his work with Pace Ashton Lord and Whitesnake and everything he's done. So
1: and finally a cool cover, too. It's a great
0: cover. And it's yeah. where I like Where's My Guitar? And the question mark is like the White Snake. Snake
1: uh-huh. in a question mark form. Well, it's, I mean, I just like when I don't know they release books or albums or whatever, and like the sometimes the picture that they pick or whatever
0: it just looks stupid. And I mean, this one looks kind of cool. So, yeah, just wearing that um, ready and ready and willing shirt T-shirt. Yeah, wearing <laughs> playing on his Les Paul there. It's a great great yep. picture. Yep, ready and willing. Another
1: horn hornball <laughs> David Coverdale title, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> David the Horned Coverdale.
0: (laughs) No, I'm sure that's not what he meant.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, let's. uh, Well, I mean, once we do get to the White Snake episode, I mean, let's face it, it's going to be because there's like David Coverdale, White Snake, North Winds. Okay, kind of boring. Then you get into like (laughs) White Snake, White Snake. (coughs) Well, then you get like. Come and get it, slide <laughs> it in, the Love Hunter. Like, it's just all this, all this. And then just like White Snake, which I mean, by 1987, it's like, what What happened? Did he lose?
0: Yeah, they just <laughs> went with that, like, that classic, you know, gr- gr- whatever it is, gray rock with the little, like, the, yeah. the White Snake medallion almost. But yeah, all no, of these I... really suggestive album covers with women doing weird things with snakes. And then he got back to it, though, with Slip of the Tongue,
1: the classic. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, later years, Coverdale page, that was kind of a letdown. There's nothing really
0: sexual about that. <laughs> I know, right? He's got to get back to that. Maybe his libido is slowing down, although based on his Twitter feed, it doesn't seem to be. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, not only that, but I mean, his he's
1: just just brain is like there's, no, there's something wrong with it. <laughs> according based on his twitter feed there's like he's going like insane like never mind his libido he's just like he's just a whack freaking
0: wacko yeah a lot, lot of very weird m- memes that he posts it's just we memes that you'd see it. like your, like whatever your your aunt or uncle post on on facebook and you'd kind of roll your eyes but then you're like oh, <laughs> this is david coverdale posting this who you know Would be our aunt or uncle, like age wise.
1: Um, Well, I mean, the one that he posted, the woman with the Photoshop tits was like (laughs) going over the bumpy road. It's like, wah, wah, you know.
0: Yeah, that was definitely one of his, one of his. Better ones. And, well, the, and the reason I had sent that one to you is because I, I he, <laughs> I, I remembered that he had posted it like a month earlier, and I was like, wait a second. He's like, I know I've seen this before, and I know it was him that posted it. So it's almost like makes you wonder: Did he like it so much he posted it again, or did he see it again and completely forget that he had already
1: posted it? I think that either scenario is funny. Is is that he's just like, you know, I want to post the. I want to post the meme with the girl with the big titties again. Um, Or, wow, look at that girl with the big titties and then posted it and completely forgot that he already posted it because he just looked at so many big titties that (laughs) in his lifetime that he's just like, I think I might have to put the
0: explicit warning on this
1: episode. (laughs) He's titty blind. Oh, it's titty. There's nothing wrong with
0: nothing. I don't know how many times you can say titties on an episode without it being (laughs) deemed child friendly. Well, I mean, not this many children that want to listen to an up freaking podcast about deep purple, but
1: Well, I mean, I guess at this point then
0: titty titty titty. <laughs> so <laughs> NC seventeen. There we go. <laughs> I don't know if it's N C seventeen. It's just it, it's I mean, it's not Great something it that, that people would uh people are gonna play um at church, I guess is <laughs> 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 You um, know, I always
1: I always just like to think of like when I heard John Lord's organ. Mm-hmm like when I was younger, I was always like, I'd never really heard an organ outside of church, mm-hmm. uh, but at least played in rock music. And whenever I would hear like a crazy ass solo, like, um, <laughs> like flight of the rat, yeah. I'd always be like, I would always like, I would die sometimes just imagining like the old lady <laughs> church organist trying to play that. <laughs> and just be like, could you imagine like, like old like Evelyn, just like
0: covering this shit, like in church, like, my my organist at church was named Dorothy. I can't imagine Dor- <laughs> I can't imagine Dorothy like tipping the organ back and like <laughs> letting letting the tubes rattle. The priest would be up
1: there with the holding his chalice in horror, <laughs> like,
0: disturbing the priest.,
1: oh, just the weirdest stuff you think about when you're a teenager. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, would be, it would be awesome <laughs> if they busted some of that out. <laughs> oh, but anyway, I digress. Alright, in uh, Purple History this week, uh, the week this comes out we be September 2nd through September 8th. And on September 5th, 1945, this gentleman was born, and that is Mick Underwood. Who would be um, he first comes on the scene as, as the, the drummer for The Outlaws with Richie Blackmore in, I think it was 1963, 64. He's later in episode 6. He's in the Deep. Uh, he's in the Ian Gillen band and in Gillen, right? He's in Gillen as well, right? At one point? Oh, I'm not sure. Maybe not the whole lineup, but so he's uh, a fixture on the, the Deep Purple extended family. Great, great drummer there. I think I read, too, that he he was he was originally considered uh, for Led Zeppelin before uh, oh. they went with John Bonham. Huh. I could be making that up, but I think I read that somewhere. Um, reading too many books at the same time. Um, yeah, your information's getting all cross-pollinated. <laughs> it is. Um, and then in on September 4th and September 6th, 1986, The live performance that would end up being Deep Purple's Nobody's Perfect album, which was one of the first Deep Purple albums I ever heard or listened to. I thought this was a weird album cover. Very weird album cover. You've got a fish that seems to be pooping out the leaning tower of Pisa and there's like a pressure cooker behind it that's connected to, there's like at least two dice, but they're spherical dice that have like the standard, like one through five on them, and it's floating down like a, a highway.
1: Yeah, I feel like if you left all that weird crap over on like the left out, and it was just the highway with all the purple, it might have been a cooler cover.
0: Well, maybe it's you no. Know, nobody's perfect. Is uh, you know, round dice not perfect. Leaning Tower of Pisa, not perfect because it's falling over. I don't know about that bass. What the problem with that bass is. Is there a pencil on it too? It looks like there's a there's a pencil on, like on the fish. <laughs> maybe that's like a, a, I don't know, maybe there was a recall on that pressure cooker because it was exploding, who knows. <laughs> but, and then there's something about that, that sign I think says like deep purple on it. And then there's like, it looks like there's a sun or a moon setting in the distance. So. But <laughs> yeah, it, it, it it's like the all those things that are imperfect kind of makes sense when you think about it that way but then you're like, well, what's wrong with that road? The road's fine. I don't know. It is a weird album cover.
1: Except but, all that weird shit's floating over it. That's
0: <laughs> yeah. That's what's wrong with the road. <laughs> but I have fond memories of this album and this album mm. cover as it kind of was my first or one of my first, if not my first, introduction to the Deep Purple band proper. And then on September 3rd 2010, very recently Blackmore's Night releases the album Autumn Sky. Mm. Which I am not familiar with it all. I have to. Neither am I. myself, we are, we are, other, I really, I'm very familiar with the first Black Mars Night album, but not much else after that other than the little bits and pieces I've heard here and there. So
1: I might have heard like half a song from one of them and then I turned it
0: off. <laughs> it's not, it's definitely it's, not your style. It's not for me. No, it's, at not, all. it's not for everybody. And this, the uh, Twitter is filled with people saying, like, what's he doing with all this? But, He's happy. He's making the music he wants to make. So we're happy for Richie. Um, okay. Well, that's it. That's Tommy Bolin. That's the and like I said, next week we'll jump into the, the rest of uh, the remaining Deep Purple album that we have left to discuss. And until next week, have a great evening. And next week we'll talk about Come Taste the Band. Adios. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deep purple podcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening.
1: Let's just say they sent us a picture of the maintenance guy and he was like, he came in and he had on like, he had on like these like rain boots that came like up to his thighs <laughs> and, and like a big bag of sand, like, sl- or like is slung oh, on his yeah. shoulder. And he's just like, and he's like laughing, standing there and everything. And it's just like, <laughs> you knew that he wore those boots just to be fucking extra, you know? <laughs> but it's like, he's no one of those guys where it's like, can you fix this? And he's like... Well, we're going to you know, we're going to need to order some screws from like uh like uh, Albania uh, of course uh, yeah. like uh, you know 6 weeks and you know why you can't do that is, is like this is called a load bearing rod. like <laughs> I just
0: I don't want to know the fucking story. Oh, right? like guys yeah, like the refrigeration guys come in and they tell you all the stuff like I don't care about any of that. Is it cold or not? Make it cold then. <laughs> make like,
1: it cold. Make
0: it cold or make it the right temperature. Like I don't need to know about the the friggin' this valve and that valve, like you, and plus you could, you could be bullshitting me and I wouldn't know. So who cares?
1: Like, come here. I've
0: got to teach you something.
1: Like you see these, you see these wheels. These are alloy aluminum. It's like, I don't give a fuck. (laughs) Alloy (laughs) aluminum.